It's Tuesday, August 8th, 2017, and you're listening to episode 453 of Fear the Boot, a show about tabletop role-playing games and a little bit more. Running time for this episode is 47 minutes. Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. This is still Brodor. That's still Wayne's empty chair. And I'm Chad. Yeah. All right. So we're on take two because the first one was night. It was great. <laughs> we're yeah. awesome. It was jizzlicious. You, you turned it off. <laughs> Brodor was talking about jizzing into a toilet. You got rid of it. How dare you? So to give context, I was saying <laughs> there is a Facebook post that I am not going to post because it is offensive. And I was like... Man, I had a wet dream where I was jerking off into a toilet. What a ripoff. <laughs> All right, we're going to turn this 90 degrees before it goes into negative episode territory. But two announcements, and then we're going to roll into the topic. And then topic's got layers, right? Okay, yes, so it's yes. got it's got a couple angles. But the two announcements real quick like is... Ogre. Yes, it's our parfait. Yeah. Is... <laughs> <laughs> First of all, the actual play, the Skies of Glass actual play, has now been submitted to the various aggregators. So if you want to pick up the Skies of Glass AP on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, or if you just want the raw... SoundCloud? Uh, No. Uh, Fear the Boot is on SoundCloud. I do not have the AP on SoundCloud yet. Mm -hmm. If it takes off and does really well, I will. But there's a separate fee to have a SoundCloud Mm -hmm. account. So... If it does really well... So, wait a minute. SoundCloud, you have to pay them to put up content that they get money for presenting. Yes, you are absolutely correct. This is That's not, some bullshit. That is some bullshit. Well, and this is not the first time it's happened when we started off Fear the Boot. I won't name names, but there were some fairly well-placed, within the RPG industry, household mm-hmm. names, who started some aggregation services where they wanted us to provide them our episodes for free, put advertisements into them, mm-hmm. and then give them, it was like 50 or 75% of the ad revenue. Hmm. That's wow. not how that works. No, no, that's not. It's like, you want me to create the content. You want me to defile my show with ads, which, by the way, we did not do and never will do. And then I'm going to just give half that revenue to you. And all you're going to do is aggregate my content. Yeah. Which, that, okay, take it from a couple IT guys, that ain't hard. No, it ain't hard. And so it's like, dude, you can put ads on there. And by ads, I don't mean like audio ads. I mean, you can like put banner ads. Yeah, like banner ads on the site, and you can make your money off that. You don't need ads in my show. And I'm yeah. even if I had them, which, once again, we're not doing that, I sure as hell am not going to give some random aggregator 50% of my cut. But anyways, we are on iTunes. We are on stitcher we are on google play and if you want to add us anywhere there's also a link to the general rss feed you can find all this at ap.feartheboot.com once again check the show notes if you want those links the second thing is just a quick note that i fixed an issue (laughs) fortunately i did it before the month ended so i know this episode is going to drop in august i actually took care of this on july 30th or july 31st so it was before the month end but we'd adjusted all the Patreon levels, and I had forgotten to adjust the episode prices. So people that were backing at a level where they should have been getting show raws or negative episodes 
or whatever weren't seeing it because they had them all tagged to backer levels and prices that don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was 100% my bad. Fortunately, this didn't actually affect anyone because, once again, I got it fixed before the month flipped. But it is now fixed. So if you were looking at this at the end of July and couldn't see your stuff, it is there now. So patreon.com slash fear the boot and chat with SoundCloud once again. If the AP. those guys. It, well, if the AP does well enough, both in terms of its own numbers and what we see on the Patreon, to give me any reason to do it. You then, know what the AP's motto is, right? Exactly. And that's my view on SoundCloud. You want four hours of unedited gaming? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Gaming, we'd have done anyway. We don't rip you off by parceling out a four hour (laughs) gaming episode into six podcasts. Hell no. We just dump it on you. Like my wife does on my chest on my birthday. She just, she has chili for breakfast, Mexican for lunch, and then just, what's that skier? Is that what that, uh, that, that Nordic like thick yogurt drink? She just chugs it all down and then, mm. yeah, we don't do that. And I'm just, just covered in a foot of foam. (laughs) So my buddy, Steve, he's so mad. He's like, my kids used to be able to listen to that show. (laughs) I I was, you know, I brought over, I had no noticed that when fear the boot started oh no here we go <laughs> going back, back when it was good before yeah, you showed back, I, I back know, that's like, what my brother says <laughs> back like 11 years i was so nervous i censored everything oh, yeah. including things that didn't need censoring and then the things he didn't censor he apologized for yeah it was it was terrible and then what happens we kind of found the sweet spot where it was pg to pg 13 but we stayed right in that realm And then as time went on, we started kind of implying and getting at some saltier stuff where like, okay, I shouldn't, there's no bleepable word, but the concepts we're discussing are definitely That's where the magic happens. That's right. But, but they were few and far between. And then you came on the show (laughs) and now this is like standard content (laughs) is things where there's no particular word I can bleep. But this entire page of the episode, right? If this was like a script for some drama, the... the If this was Son of Bukapi. <laughs> the censors oh, at NBC God. would be tearing out whole pages and sending them back for rewrite. All right. So I tried to fire him. Yeah, that's true. I did. <laughs> Speaking of which, so last night I did it where my wife and I are brushing our teeth. I have a mouthful of just... Foamy saliva and toothpaste. She says something, boom, spit take all over the mirror and sink. Any which way. Boo copy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So Chad was talking about our current dwarf game. game. So not the Skies of Glass actual play. Not the Dresden game. But the streaming. Star Trek game. Not your D&D game. (laughs) A lot of games. the, the, The Twitch streaming actual play, which... We might look at trying to capture and add to the general Fear the Boot AP feed. But right now it's on Twitch. We've got some technical issues we're working on. Yeah, we have technical issues we're working on. But there was a question that was raised by that game, which is coming into game one. Mm -hmm. We knew what the outcome of game one was. And so there's some questions about how do you maintain the tension when you know exactly where the plot's headed 
And who does that fall upon? Is that the GM's responsibility, the player's responsibility? Is it some mix of the two? And while Chad was talking about this, there's a video game that kind of, I don't know, conceptually ties into this. It doesn't literally mm-hmm. tie into this. But it conceptually ties into it because it's something I'm working through on my own right now. Because I just started playing Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain. Mm-hmm. And my first observation was if I got a dollar for every time you saw Keith or Sutherland's butt. No, because you see it a lot. You you do see his ass a lot in the game. In fact, at one point, they actually zoom the camera down and make yes. you look at his wide open flowing yep. hospital gown. I mean, people it, gave the game crap because there's a female character in there who is essentially naked. And it's this whole she has this a light reflecting camouflage see through skin suit on. And, I mean, it, it, it is highly sexualized. People gave it a lot of crap for them doing that. But the counter-argument was the camera is up Heath Sutherland's ass yeah. for the entire first half hour of Dude, the game. It's like a colonoscopy. It's amazing. <laughs> it, it really is. It, yeah. it is somewhere between sim colonoscopy <laughs> and that famous Marilyn Monroe steam vent shot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. except with Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> In, in a hospital gown. gown. And, yeah, and you have to follow him, and there's a lot of crawling. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you you do. You yeah. literally do have to go down like an army crawl <laughs> after his ass. <laughs> okay, so just putting that out there. It's amazing. All right, but no. If but, I, uh, but, <laughs> but yes. If, oh I, <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time between the intro credits, the prologue, the second round of credits between the prologue and chapter one and the start of chapter one if i had a dollar for every time that either hideo kojima's name or the guy who made the game yeah the guy who made the game or his self-named studio fox catcher no he has there's like there is fox catcher Mm -hmm. but there's also like hideo kojima productions or some such crap if i had a dollar (laughs) For every time I saw that man's name, he would be paying me 500 bucks to play his game. It was ridiculous. I could not believe how damn many times. It's like, I can get it. He was involved in the game. Everybody knows this. It's like this. buying a Stephen King novel. You don't buy Carrie by Stephen King. You buy Stephen King's Carrie. Except imagine if you open up, it's like, Carrie, brought to you by Stephen King, a Stephen King production, published by Stephen King LTD, distributed by Stephen King Distributors. And then you like flip to page one. It's like chapter one, a story by Stephen King. Carrie, a character created by Stephen King. Stephen King, Stephen King, fucking Stephen King. Fire, fire, blood, pig's blood, Stephen King. It is ridiculous. It's like, dude, I don't know what your psychiatric issue is. All right. Let me say right now, and I say this with the greatest of love for creators. I know because I know why some creators choose to do this, because sometimes their name gets ahead of their brand. Monty Cook should name everything he does and for the rest of his life. Monty Cook's Monty Cook's RPG yes, game that he wrote. Precisely. Mm-hmm. His company should be Monty Cook's Monty Cook. <laughs> right. I get it. All I right. Monty Cook. <laughs> and I understand that there are other people where they see the brand as very much an expression of themselves. And so they want to name the company or whatever after themselves. I don't have a problem with that. But I have always had a little bit of trepidation about people that feel the need 
to name everything they do after themselves and plaster their name all over everything they do. You will notice at no point has this been called Dan Repriger's Fear the Boot. Dan Repriger produces Skies of Glass. Damn long. Well, yes. I mean, one, my name's like, it's like somebody just had a seizure while drawing from a Scrabble bag. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> I, I mean, that's part of it. Nobody can pronounce it. I would need to change my last name to something else. Like, I don't know, some nonsensical pen name like Ellington. But <laughs> Daniel Farnsworth Ellington. <laughs> yes. I like the Farnsworth middle name. You know, when I was working for a serial fiction company, we had people... You guys wrote short stories about, like, breakfast food? Yes, that's exactly... No. <laughs> Absolutely. No. That's how books work. Later, we'll come back to box catcher, but... <laughs> the, the, the other kind of serial fiction, where people would write in about thousand-word installments, and then you come back next week. It's actually the way that Sherlock Holmes was originally written. Hmm. Uh, this actually used to be, like, a century ago. This was very common in fiction. It's not anymore. But serialized fiction used to be incredibly common... The same way now, you like tune in for an episode of a TV show, and before that, you tuned in for this installment of a radio show. They did the same thing with literature. And so we were working on a website that did serial prose. And there were so many people, because I was doing the coding, so I saw the real names, then I saw the the pen names. And there's so many people that had these damned self-important like flex hard cheese. Yeah, it's like Chet Manley. And- <laughs> Chet Manley's a great one. Name. Of, one of my favorite ones was, and I'm making the name up here because I don't remember, but it was like Biff Blast Press. It, no, it was something really, really unremarkable, like Patricia McIntosh or something right. like that. And she had changed her name to Devin Ellington. Mm. And it's like, oh come on, get the over yourself yeah you have to have a farnsworth in front of ellington yes put a farnsworth in there there was one guy There was one guy where it was totally justified because honest god his real birth name his legal name Mm. ronald mcdonald wow yeah yeah i'd change that (laughs) and i'm like this guy change it legally (laughs) yeah i would too i don't know why he had not gone down to the courthouse and changed it legally but his real birth certificate social security whatever name was ronald mcdonald Mm. And it's like, dude, I completely get you. All right, but anyway, so while I'm playing this game and I'm getting Kojima's name, and I mean, it was just one after another, after another, after another. There was something else that was going through my head, which is I don't know to what extent I'm going to enjoy this game because of the fact. Now, please don't spoil this because I am trying to play the game through. And for anyone who's not aware, the Metal Gear series has probably the most convoluted storyline of any convoluted storyline to ever be a convoluted storyline. And it only makes sense in the mind of a madman who can't stop seeing his own name everywhere he looks. <laughs> I really think the man sits down and's like, today I'm going to have eggs and bacon brought to you by Hideo Kojima for breakfast. Hideo Kojima's breakfast paid for with Hideo Kojima's yen on Hideo Kojima. I mean, I literally think that's the subtitles this man sees as he walks around his household. But I did read when I thought I wasn't going to play this game. Uh-huh. I did go out and read the plot synopsis. Now, I don't remember a lot of it, partially because it's a fevered dream yes. of a plot line. But it's internally consistent. But it, Oh, yeah. Yes. In, in his madness, it is internally consistent. But as I was playing the game, there was a question that was resonating through my mind, which is what precisely am I going to take away from a game 
when I know at least some of its major gives. Mm -hmm. Some of them I don't know, and some of them I just don't remember. But I know a couple of its major gives, and it's like, how am I going to maintain the enjoyment of play in such a plot and character-driven game? Yes, it does have stealth and action elements, obviously. But to me, the story and the characters are bigger than the action elements, just in terms of my enjoyment. And so it's like, how am I going to enjoy that, right? Who is that impetus on, and how do I work that out? Now, I can't blame Hideo Kojima. You'd think because you've seen his name <laughs> so many times, but I've never heard it spoken. I, I, I'm just I, Kojima. We'll just call him Kojima. But the fact is that I'm playing Kojima's game produced by Kojima, published by Kojima, 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 Kojima the Phantom Kojima. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland's ass, <laughs> and it's like Goatsy. If you peer far enough in there, you see Kojima's name again, and then another Kiefer Sutherland's ass off of the K in Kojima, and the O in Kojima is the next Kiefer Sutherland asshole. I mean, seriously, it's just I like I don't think you should play this game. <laughs> this is like this is like our parents coming to us when we were kids. I think this game is making you too upset. I think you should. Play <laughs> are you kidding this is gold <laughs> but it's like you know how am i going to take away what i want from this game the experience i want when i know some of the gifts and so i had to make the choice to say okay i'm going to certainly enjoy the parts i don't recall and i, I hope okay assuming they're good it's your <laughs> definition of good. Right. Okay. And that's, that's subjective. And I'll let you know when I get there. But I think part of it was I also had to make the decision that I am going to take those parts I know about and either, A, put them out of my head, do my best to forget them, or B, to try and find something else in the game to fixate on around those plot points. So when I know a particular give is coming up, to find something else in the game to fixate on, building up my private army, whatever, to carry me through those plot points. And so now th this was different insofar as when we played the dwarf game, or when we are playing the dwarf game, the dwarf hold is going to collapse was part of the elevator pitch. Mm -hmm. The gives that I know about Metal Gear Solid were not in the elevator pitch of the game. They were on the Wikipedia entry, but it was not on the back of the box. It's not in the Steam description when I downloaded it, right? It, it doesn't give you those gives there. But the concept still struck me as very much the same. All right, so that setup and rant given, Chad, take this to the Dwarf game. So with the Dwarf game, I mean, the, there's this tension, right? You start out, we're in a jail. Some of us, like my character, is literally behind bars. Other characters are like visiting and that sort of thing. And in short order, the the basically the dwarf hold starts blowing up. And then that's the tension, right? The the tension is not figuring out why it's blowing up. It, it's kind of like a disaster movie, right? It, and it, it's going and going and going. So, you know, as a game master. Or well, let me let me back this up. As a player, you sit there and you're like, "There is imminent doom. I care about my character, and 
this disaster thing, which is the dwarf hole blowing up and getting taken over by demons and lava coming everywhere, is imminent danger. And so in the game, I have to escape from it. You, you know, you can't fight a lava, you know, volcano blowing up. Not our level. Right. Yeah, not at our level. <laughs> so, Give us enough levels in D&D and we could, but right. not at our level. So it's essentially we're running away. And the tension from that in a story concept in any game, not just this dwarf game, but in any game when disaster is looming, is is it going to get us? We have to be smart or clever or tough or strong or fast to escape the doom. The doom is coming at us. It is unstoppable. And the game is not fighting against it. The game is escaping it. And there's no, like, timer, right? I mean, it's impending, and the Game Master just kind of keeps cranking it up and making it more apparent and more there and more breathing down your neck, and and the tension rises and rises and rises. And from the Game Master perspective, it's totally different. It's a tool, right? The Doom, any game, again, not just, you know, Hajiro Kojima's you know, keep Sutherland's butt game or the dwarf game. Uh, the, 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 whatever your tension is, whatever your game is, whatever story you're trying to tell. The Phantom Menace. <laughs> the Doom shows up when it needs to. You know, it, it isn't this thing where it's coming and, you know, your players, well, they just weren't fast enough and they get consumed by lava. It, it isn't that. It, it's a plot. It's a story element. It's not dice. It's not mechanics. It's not timing. It's not story beats. It is... If the players slow down, the doom gets closer. When they speed up, the doom doesn't back off in your mind and planning it backs off, but you don't tell them that so that they can think and take a breath yeah. and, and do cool things. And when they've kind of spun their wheels a little too much doing the cool things, then the doom is coming. So it, it's this, this dial that you keep you know dialing up and dialing back to keep them moving and, and going. Again, totally different from the players. From the players, it's like this buy-in, right? It's this buy-in that that it is coming no matter what, and I can't stop it, and I have to run, and I have to go, and it's there isn't a game master that's doing me a favor and letting me rest and then prodding my I and my fellows on with this stick, right? So we're not dumb. Everybody at the table knows what's going on, right? You know, we the game master knows, the players know. So who is responsible here? Who is the onus on to make that believable? To make that where I'm not just sitting back with a beer and going, oh, the doom's coming, ha, ha, ha. Well, you know, whatever, we just do whatever, and it's fine and joking. No, it's just like, oh, my God, guys, we got to go. We got to move. We can't sit here in this library and take these books like your character, you know, was so important. And we can't go to the armory, which my character thought was so important. It's like, we got to go. We got to leave. We're going to die. And we got to that visceral reaction. Whose responsibility is that? Is it the responsibility of the game master to make it believable, not give the tells like what Dan is saying, the, the tells of you know what it is, you know what's coming, you know what the outcome is going to be, and that you also know it's it's a tool. Your, your characters really aren't going to die. It's just a tool. Is it the Game Master's responsibility to make that seem real, to sell it really well, to obfuscate it, to put all the trappings on it, to make it seem really neat? Or is it the player's responsibility to buy into what the Game Master is selling? To buy into, I believe this Doom is coming. We are playing a tense game. 
I'm not going to make jokes about the lava coming out of the ground and how silly it is and play it off. And then, oh, we're going to go to the library and we have we're going to go to the Dewey Decimal System and look up the books because the doom isn't really going to kill us. You know, well, so the answer to that question, obviously, is both. Exactly. Yeah. It is both people's responsibility because if the players don't, as you put it, buy in, right? If the mm-hmm. players don't embrace their role as people, as their characters experiencing the doom, then the game master has to ramp it up further, right? Yeah. So, for example, if they go to the library and they grab the cards to go through the Dewey Decimal System, well, that's when a wall crumbles and lava starts spilling in and you as the game master, you have ramped up the doom and said the doom is real. Right. The other thing that they, that the players and the game master all have to understand is sure on the meta, you Chad know that your character's not going to die, mm-hmm. but you can't react that way. Yeah. And if you do something that indicates you're not taking it seriously, then the game master has to, well, Smack you. has to punish you for that yeah, sort of yeah, behavior. I, I think there is certainly a dial that the GM is operating on. The GM can't go too low on the dial yeah. because it takes away any sense of plausibility about the disaster. But the GM can't go too high on the dial because you get protest burnout. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can only spend so much time running and running right. and running and running. Yeah. Or it's like, why am I playing this game? Why don't we just go ahead and start us at the end? Yeah. But you know, if, which which I think gets into your your question, you know, the video game or how it applies to other stuff. Why don't we just start at the end? Because what you're saying is, you know, you, Dan, know the tells, the doom, the tension. You, as a player, know it all. So how do you as a player, work around that? How do you get that visceral feel? You know, if I had to pick one of the two, because I don't want to cut the middle answer, not because it's wrong, because I think it's completely right. I think to say that some of it's on the player to act that out, to behave as they would in the moment, to try to make that somewhat real, to try to internalize the idea that for every foot you progress, that is a foot more of your home That is gone. Mm. You know, for you, this game has been going on for an hour, hour and a half. For your character, this is years, decades. I mean, we're dwarves, or some of us are dwarves, centuries Mm -hmm. of history that are being lost back there. Some people are about to be driven out into the sunlight for the first time in their lives. And I I think it is on that vampire cross class thing I did. Big mistake. I'm kind of regretting this decision now. (laughs) <laughs> but yes, it is incumbent upon players to some degree. But to avoid taking the easy way out, I'm going to force myself to pick one or the other, and I'm going to pick the GM. Mm-hmm. All right, now here's why I think it's incumbent upon the GM. When we sat down to play this game, the GM gave that as the elevator pitch. Now, part of the basic social contract of a role-playing game is that I'm going to present you with a world that you can interact with. And this world is going to present challenges. It's going to present unexpected surprises. It's going to give you opportunities to explore something. Well, it's hard to explore something when you know it all. And so I think it becomes incumbent upon the GM more than the player to make this work. And here's how I would suggest they do it. Focus on the facts they don't know, 
and the choices they haven't made. Mm-hmm. Now, we know the Dwarf Fortress is going down in a sea of fire. We know this. That cannot be the driving factor of the game. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a doom counter in the it, background. It's the driving overarching sure. motivation in some We know it's yeah, back but, there, yeah. but that can't be what drives the game. And there were two things in particular I noticed in that game. One that I think we somewhat invented on our own, but it was an implicit fact of John's game. The other was something that John gave us that was an explicit fact of the game that went beyond this, or maybe went deeper than this. Let me start with the first, the implicit thing. As we were role-playing prior to this event, which wasn't a huge amount of time, but nonetheless we were doing it, and as we were role-playing on our way out, we were building bonds with NPCs, not knowing exactly what their motivations were, and also not knowing whether they survive. Now, we know it's not going to be a TPK in game one, because that'd be John torpedoing his own game. (laughs) Maybe one of us will die if we're an idiot. But we don't know what happens to these NPCs. For example, we ended up making a somewhat unexpected bond with a bunch of ruffians and hooligans. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are the 'er ne'er-do-wells. I mean, these are the people that we ought to be pushing into the lava on our way out. But we didn't. We actually kind of ended up winning some of them over to our side with some lucky rolls and sort of making a useful force out of them. And these people became a an element of, if not good, at least order, at least consistency. And so I, I think that was thing one. But thing two was John gave us choices along the way that tested our priorities and that helped determine where the game will go from here. Once again, the Dwarf Fortress is gone. That's a given. We know that. What we don't know is what comes after. And John gave us very explicit choices that would drive us. He started off by saying, well, you can go to either the library or the temple. The temple's obviously going to have cultural and religious artifacts that, if we care at all about our society, they're important. This is like having a chance to raid the Vatican before it gets nuked, right? I mean, there's things in there, regardless of what your religion is, you can't argue are cultural artifacts, or we can go to the library, which is where all the information is. All the right. f- But you can't do both. We can't yeah. do both. You must pick. And then off of those two were two more choices. So if we go to the temple, which is a cultural preservation route, one option was we could go to the Myconid farm and pick up a bunch of sporing mushrooms that would create a pretty instantaneous food supply wherever we decide to put down, excuse the pun, roots next. And I forgot what the other choice was. There was another choice off of that. But once again, it was one or the other, not both. If we went to the library, we could go to either the armory to get weapons, armor, the types of things we need to defend ourselves out in the wilderness. Or we could go once again to something else. I forget what. I, I don't remember what it was. Is the mines? Gunsmith. It was a gunsmith. Yes, it was the gunsmith. That's what it was. And see, this is why you don't start with the city, with the dwarf hold already destroyed because you're developing those bonds with NPCs, but then you're also making these really crucial choices that impact the direction of the game 
after right. the dwarf hold is lost. And so we chose library, and then off of library, we chose armory. So we chose to go with basic equipment as opposed to the cutting edge but somewhat risky dwarven technology of guns. And we chose knowledge over culture and over, over food. and over food. Right? Now, there was a reason for that. Yeah, you can eat NPCs. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we have a human and an elf, so... Yeah. I mean, they're not dwarves. Well, no, ever. Right. More, more specifically, not... my, actually cannibalism. <laughs> right. More specifically, my character thought at that point that we might be having outside influences that were at work here that might have some information on them in the library, because he's kind of concerned that wherever we go, we're going to face a similar threat, because this might be tailing us. Or we might make the same mistakes again. And notice he says we, even though he's not a dwarf. But there were in-character reasons for that. But the fact is that who survives, who we bond with, what priorities we make about what to save, and about where we're thinking we're going to go from here. Are we going to run for another cave? Are we going to try and blend in with another society? Do we become nomads? What happens to us? These were major questions that did not directly have anything to do with the fact that lava was seeping behind us. All that did was force us to make the choices. But that was the part of the game that I focused on, and John put that in there. If John had not put that in there, if John had not described these things, if John had not said, okay, here's who's in the cells, the brig, with Chad's character. We'd have had none of these choices to make about these ne'er-do-wells. We'd have none of these choices to make about the old man who knows all the dwarven tales, who had been locked up for reasons that we still don't know, even though he should be above the law. We'd have had no decisions to make about the priest who was down there trying to minister to Chad. If John had not told us, you can choose A or B, and then within A or B, you can choose over on the A side, A sub 1 or A sub 2, or B sub 1, B sub 2. We'd have never been forced to make those priority calls. Well, it would have been a foot race. It would be Exactly. It would have been a foot race to say, okay, I want to grab whatever it is we think is important. My character wanted a shield. I want to grab a shield and run for the door. Mm. It would have been like just that simple. I mean, maybe we'd have come up with something, but I think when John pitches to us, Here's the punchline of game one. He's the game master. He's supposed to be giving us the baseline of a story and a world to interact with. Now, it's our job to do that. It's our job to at least make the attempt in good faith to bite. But if he's not baiting the hook, I put that on him. Well, and I think think that's fair. However... Notice that you guys didn't gamify the situation. You just, you said our choices are didn't split up, right? You didn't split up. You didn't try to sort of min max things, right? Mm -hmm. You said in character, we're going to go to the library and you have your brief debate about why it's important to the library, but you didn't game out. Well, if we follow this tree, then we can do this thing and that thing and that thing. And he did not give you as the game master, the opportunity to weigh those options. But as players, you guys bought in immediately. You didn't try to do any of that bullshit gamifying. You just said, look, it's more important to go to the library than it is to go to the temple. All right, we're at the library. Where can we go for here? It's more important for us to get basic supplies in terms of arms and armament to survive the wilderness. We can find food once we have basic arms and armament. So 
screw the guns, let's go get basic arms and armament. And then you keep doing that, but you're doing it all in character because you've bought into the scenario. So I agree with you. I think more of the responsibility is on the game master, but I think that you as players, you absolutely do your part. Yeah, and, and I let me emphasize that I do believe the impetus, the, the weight here of this is on both parties. But rather than cutting the middle road, right. I, I wanted to put it one place or the other. And if I had to pick between the two, right, I had to choose within that false dichotomy. Sure. I think I would go Game Master, and that's why. Well, I, I think it's Game Master's job to set up the mechanism, the story, the tension, the choices. It's the player's job to execute tension. We're talking about the doom, right? It's the Game Master's job to just be the man behind the curtain, to just keep kind of moving the levers around of the tension and then telling the, the players, this is what you see. This is what happens. This is what you do. Now the wall collapses in and more doom and they, oh, we're running. And yeah, I think that the game master has to have a good idea of the beginning, middle and end and the flow of it. But I think a lot of onus is on the players for buy-in and keeping up with the pace, understanding the pace the game master's pitching because it, it flips the script right yeah. normally in a game the game master is leading the players mm-hmm. along and the players are reacting to what the game master is doing yeah. now it's the game master can basically sit back and dial up or down doom based on the reaction of the players right mm-hmm. so if i need to ramp it up i ramp it up and then they're reacting and doing their thing but all of the debating that happens in character about what is the right decision tree to follow, yeah. none of that is being produced by the game master. All of that great RP and decision making and picking the path that we're going to follow is all done by the players. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's also something I thought John did a great job of is in the course of that game, he presented mystery. All right. So we know There's more to this lava flow than just a volcanic event. We know that there is conspiracy within our own dwarf hold. We know that beyond any shadow of a doubt. We know that there were darker things at work. We know that at least one demon was involved. Once again, we know it's beyond any shadow of a doubt. But we never had the opportunity to fully and thoroughly exhaust these mysteries. We never had the, I mean, we were allowed to slow down and get some basic info, right? It's like running through a crime scene with a notepad, just writing down what you see in a three-minute flyby. So we know some of the facts. We weren't left completely in the dark. But John used that lava flow not to screw us, not to keep us from finding out anything, but we can't learn everything. Mm Mm-hmm. Because some of it's being destroyed by the lava behind us, and even what's ahead of us, we can't slow down to interrogate. We can't have tea with these people. Right. We have to get through that damn door into open air before this becomes our tomb. And so, you know, John also put in there a mystery that we were allowed to tease out enough to find interesting but did not have all of the time we wanted. And I think that's something else. I think, Chad, you've talked about this in the past. Oh, there's a great game mastering technique of 
always giving the players 90% of what they need and 90% of what they want. Because if you give them 100%, which I think you should eventually, right? But if you give them 100%, they're done. It's over. If you give none of it, they just get frustrated. Right. But if you keep it such that they feel like they're getting somewhere, which they should be, right? They should be getting somewhere. Then you keep them invested without giving them the payoff in the first 30 seconds. You know, it's who's the guy doing this? And, oh, hey, look, here's a note on the dead guy's body explaining who's doing it. And mystery solved. We kill his ass. Let's roll on. And that's the hardest part of, like, actual mystery, not there is mystery in your game and we don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm talking like who done it, murder mysteries of how much do you give? You're the game master. You know who did it. You know why they did it. You know all the players. You know what the solution is, so to speak. And the players are doing investigation and rolling and investigation and rolling. And to me, doing a, a murder mystery like that, it's not about the doom, right? It's not about this tension of the doom and it's coming. And then, you know, you need your players to get to a certain point. So you whip them a little harder and then you kind of slow them down. It's more like, here is information that I am slowly feeding you to get you to the point. I want you to get when I want you to get there. And I think a lot of what happens in a whodunit mystery in a role-playing game is very similar to, the questions we're asking about tension and the quote doom here is who is the onus on is the onus on the game master to have a good mystery to dole it out slowly at the right time to get the pacing correct or is the onus on the players to investigate properly and to actually ask questions, but to ask the right questions. So the game master's only one person, mm-hmm. right? And the game master is generally the one person who has done before the game and after the game the vast majority of the work. While you're at the game session, so much responsibility needs to be on the part of the players to participate, Mm -hmm. to buy into the doom, to buy into the interest of the mystery, right? Now, I'm not saying that it's entirely their responsibility, but your players can't come to the game and strap into the roller coaster and then just enjoy the ride, right? They can't do that. They have to participate. They have to be excited. They have to jump up and down. They have to woo as they're going down the hills. They have to get anxious as we're climbing up and the roller coaster is is clickety-clackety, clickety-clackety as you're coming to the apex of the hill. And they have to conform. They can't rebel. Right. Now, Uh, Right. That's hugely important. I mean, I've seen players where they're pissed off about something that happened in the game or maybe even out of the game or whatever. And they rebel against type. They rebel against the genre. They rebel against the pacing of the game. They rebel against the tone of the game. They don't sit there and do nothing and just passively observe and be angry, but they want to own the game so to speak, or they want to have power over the game. And so they just, you know, they rebel against the concept. Now, I'm not saying that players have to conform. I'm not saying that the game master is handing you a script and allowing you to fill in some of the parts here, be daring and different and, and unpredictable and interesting. It's kind of a tangent, but I've seen that in game. But you've got to you've yeah. got to give a shit, right? Yeah. I mean, imagine in the skies of glass game. If everything's going down between color and Holloway and Joe, I, I just don't care. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. just like, whatever. I've I'm got, going, I got I've, my boat. I've got my boat. None of this changes the river. 
Yeah. Right. None of this changes anything, whether I'm paying homage to Color or Holloway. Mm. None of that matters. It doesn't matter who's won. I'm schlepping down the river. Yeah. Right. I just don't care. Chad, Lee, mm. Philip, you guys decide. Yeah. Actually, f- Motomar, you decide. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It, that, or like in the dwarf game where we would say there's the library and the food and the decision trees and the role playing and stuff. And, and you start role playing. And then somebody in the group says, hey, let's just leave. <laughs> you know, why are we even talking about this? I don't care. The, obviously, the game is over there. We have to get out of the doors to get to the game. He isn't going to make us starve. I don't give a shit about culture or knowledge. And my character has weapons and armor. Yes. So let's just walk out. That player gets their pink slip. (laughs) It's the the opposite of the Willy Wonka golden ticket, right? You just get, (laughs) I'm just going to mail you a pink slip. Right. There you go. You're out. You're out of this game. Mm -hmm. You're not, you're not, you're a non-participant. Yeah. Well, and and it's worse than non-participant. It's like an anti-participant. It's sucking something out of the game and I would because much, right because at the yeah. same time you're shitting on everybody else's fun right. everybody else who is invested and is participating in that that rp and those mm-hmm. decisions you're just mocking and crapping on what they're doing yep. yeah you're right i should shoot that player <laughs> i completely agree i mean except if, with the shooting well i mean if you do that i've got to <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm advocating the only reason to have a game master screen is so your players aren't sure which gun you have. <laughs> you could be tracking them. Yeah, I'm kidding. Professional I would, style. I would not. I would not do that. Right. <laughs> and if I did shoot him, it would be you know like a super soaker, right? Of urine. Yeah. Oh yeah. If they're lucky, you know there is one thing. There is one thing to bring us around full circle. There's one thing I was incredibly thankful for. About maybe two things I've, I've been incredibly grateful for about Metal Gear so far. <laughs> one, Kiefer Sutherland's ass. <laughs> well, one, because of the fact that my face is up Kiefer Sutherland's ass through <laughs> the entire prologue, I am so grateful it's not a VR game. <laughs> and secondly, I am so glad that at no point does he fart. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have VR smell of vision. Yes, which they're working on, and I, I don't want at all. So. All right. <laughs> on that highbrow note, I think that's where we'll end this one. Uh, check the show notes. I'm sure we'll link to something. And beyond that, have a great week and great games. And we will catch you next time. This has been a production of Fear the Boot, copyright 2017. Listeners are free to use this episode in any non-commercial endeavor so long as credit is provided to feartheboot.com. You can find previous episodes and other resources at feartheboot.com. Fear the Boot is also a member of the RPG Academy network of shows. You can find other great shows in this network at therpgacademy.com slash network.